Hello and welcome to That HR Podcast by People Management. My name is Emily Burt, and as usual, I'll be exploring all you need to know about this month in HR, including our expert panel join me in celebrating LGBT Pride Month, and we discuss the very pressing need to take diversity in the workplace seriously. I'll also be asking, is your smartphone the future of learning and development, or could technology-based learning just be another workplace fad? And Tim Pointer helps a humanities graduate get their foot in the door in everyone's favourite feature, Tim's Pointers. That's all to come. Well, a very happy June to all of our listeners. This is one of my favourite months of the year, not least because it is International LGBT Pride Month, an annual recognition of the influence that LGBT people have had around the world and still continue to have. But while it's brilliant to celebrate the progress and the increasing visibility of the LGBT community, we also have to recognise that there is still a long way to go when it comes to diversity and inclusion, not least in the workplace. Statistics this year from charity Stonewall revealed that more than a third of LGBT people are hiding or disguising their sexuality at work. And almost one in five people who identify as LGBT have been the target of negative conduct from their colleagues in the last year. As many as one in eight transgender people have been physically attacked by their colleagues or by customers. This is a very real and pervasive problem. So what can we do to fix it? Well, two experts who have plenty of thoughts on this are employment lawyer Jules Quinn and Krishna Amkar, lawyer and Stonewall's Gay Role Model of the Year 2018. Both work at King & Spalding Legal Firm. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. So, Krishna, you are Stonewall's Gay Role Model of the Year. What does that feel like for you? And also, have you always felt very comfortable managing your sexuality and your identity at work? Well, two interesting questions. First of all, what does it feel like? You know, when I was told about it, I didn't even know that I was in I was in contention or being considered for it. And my first reaction was, "You've got to be kidding me!" You know, what have I done? Why Why am I the role model? But actually, for me, it's less of an accolade and more of a responsibility, in the sense that you know, as you said, a third of LGBT people are not, not out in the workplace. Something like sixty percent graduates go back into the closet when they start yeah. work. And so there are two things there that help change that. And that one is allies and the other is um, role models. Mm. Because if you don't, if you look up and you don't see any people like you, then you're more likely to think, well, that's the norm. I need to conform to it. And the whole point is, if you want to break the boxes, you've got to show that there are people who are outside those boxes to start with. So so that's the first thing. How does it feel like? Well, I mean, I, I, frankly, it feels like a big responsibility. And I think that actually... All of us can be role models on a daily basis and should be. So it shouldn't just be one gay role model of the year or one trans role model of the year. It shouldn't be all of us, whether we're LGBT or whether we're allies. And then the second thing that you said was, do I feel comfortable about it and how do I negotiate it? Actually, it's a struggle on a daily basis. And I think as LGBT people, but this is a this is an experience that is not exclusive to LGBT people. I think it can be applied to the lives of women in the workplace. It can be applied to the lives of ethnic minorities in the workplace or even people who are from non-traditional class backgrounds, mm. people who, are, who don't conform to the usual city stereotype. And that is you do feel a little bit like an imposter. There is a large sense of imposter syndrome. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is there is this compulsion to conform and this constant feeling of insecurity that you are not performing as you are expected to. So actually, it's a daily struggle. 
Look, I think the, the statistics are harrowing. The idea that such a huge, you know, population within the workforce can't be their true authentic selves is hugely concerning, mm. both in terms of the individual, and I think I've seen it firsthand, what creating a sort of a fabrication around your existence, your workplace existence, as opposed to, you know, your your out of work existence, what that can do, both to the individual, you know, it has huge impacts on, on health, on productivity, but also, you know, just in terms of, of the workplace, what that means to retention is you just don't get to keep those people, you know, they, they move on, they leave, performance drops. There are some employers who've got it right, you know, mm. there are some good examples, there are some notable exceptions where there is a very open culture as Krish says there are role models and I just don't think you can underestimate the importance of that you know vibrant affinity groups those sorts of things so I think there is a huge moral responsibility on employers to do a lot of work here uh, it's not necessarily a legal obligation and mm. you know we can talk about that but I think just in terms of a diverse culture and the hugely beneficial impact that has around retention recruitment and productivity you know there is a real obligation there on employers to change the culture and I think that's really interesting what both of you have said because that workplace identity is a thing and there are you know more than a third of people hiding their sexuality sometimes that can just be a case of no one thinks to ask people presume so for example I identify as bisexual but I have a boyfriend and you know when people have asked me about my partner I've always said oh you know he does this he does that so people just think I'm straight and that's a very common problem inside and outside of work but it meant that when I wrote a blog back in May talking about my bisexuality that was actually quite a surprise to my colleagues but having said that, I never felt worried or anxious about what would happen if I did choose to come out at work. The sad reality is that there are lots of people who, who don't, you know, are not that comfortable in the workplace. Jules, you're an employment lawyer, as I mentioned earlier. I'm very interested. Have you ever experienced stories where people have been discriminated against actively because of their sexuality? We talked about moral responsibilities of employers, but legally as well. What do they have to do? around this? Well, look, the law, the law plays a, a very important part, I think, in terms of setting the tone within the workplace, but it is limited. You know, it is about creating a level playing field, creating equality of opportunity, and it's about preventing discrimination. And they are the bedrock. It's hugely important. And I think in my experience, you rarely find direct discrimination. So you rarely find, I mean, you do sometimes, but it's a rarity that you will find somebody who goes out of their way to, to discriminate against an LGBT person. What you more often find is sort of indirect discrimination. They have inbuilt prejudices that they don't actually recognise. You know, it's about educating, I think, within the workforce to make people recognise when they are acting in a, in a way that's considered to be prejudicial. I, I think what is legally required is probably reactive you know it's a minimum this sort of equality of opportunity and preventing discrimination actually what good employers do is go much further than that diversity and inclusion is such a big buzzword and you never meet an employer who says no i don't want to be diverse the majority of employers out there are saying oh yeah you know i'm inclusive i have a diverse workplace you know i i support that and yet there are still so many problems in terms of, of direct and indirect discrimination, which happen, you know, in kind of microaggressions or just 
without people even realising it on an almost daily basis. Why is this such a problem? Why is it that we find it so hard to be proactive? Actually, when you think about what does diversity and inclusion mean, it's not really a nice to have because what we're talking about is equality. Right. Mm. I mean, Jules made the point about the gender pay gap. Now, the gender pay gap is not something it would be nice to have equality of pay. Mm. Hello, that should be the starting point. And so for me, diversity and inclusion in a way actually gets in the way. It obfuscates the reality. And that is what we're trying to tackle is a lack of equality in the workplace. We're Mm. not trying to tackle something that is, you know, an acute nice to have. We're trying to tackle something that is a moral issue. And when you phrase it in those terms, I think, you have to sit up and take notice of it of it much more. But, you know, no one says, uh, even as a law firm or even as, as you know, as a, as a FTSE 100, you don't say, we aim to be or we aspire to be profitable. Yeah. Right? Like, that's something you start off with. The idea is, mm. of course, we've got to be profitable. We've got to mind our bottom line. Well, we shouldn't be saying, well, yes, we aspire to be equal in the workplace, because, of course, that should be your starting point. And so I kind of feel that actually, in a way, the diversity and inclusion buzzword epidemic actually gets in the way of creating real progress sometimes. But but I have seen employers who say we don't need diversity training or, you know, we don't need the policies because in our organisation, everybody is equal and there is no discrimination. Well, you know, that to me is just a huge red flag that there is just a total lack of awareness there. I mean, it's few and far between mercifully, but, you know, we all have a very important role to play in this for sure. And, you know, the risk of sounding a bit too political, you know, there are friends of mine who I sometimes have arguments with because they say things like, oh, well, you know, white privilege doesn't exist or I don't see colour. And you think, well, of course you see colour. But the environment that you exist in teaches you to see colour and think of it in a certain way. The environment that we work in teaches us to deal with women in the the workplace Mm -hmm. or make assumptions about women in the workplace in a certain way, just like, you know, assumptions about you being straight. I've been in meetings where clients have walked in and they've handed, there's one woman in the meeting room and they've handed them their coat. You know, again, that's not something necessarily that is being done out of a malicious reason but it is the environment that has conditioned you and so when we talk about diversity and inclusion we should be challenging that environment Mm. and that setup and if we don't then we're going to end up in a position where there is no real change but everyone has that beautiful page on their website that says we're very diverse and inclusive. Here we are are all being very diverse together. I think you've both made such interesting points there and I think what it might be is that we actually need a fundamental shift in attitude towards diversity these days because there are lots of indexes out there, there are lots of diversity registers. Stonewall, for example, has a great diversity index for LGBT employers. They list the top 100 employers with the best records on this. But this is something that's voluntary. It's something that is very aspirational. Is it time that we actually start taking a harder line on this and changing that conversation from you aspire to be diverse to no, diverse is where you begin? I think there are some advantages to having proactive legal strategies rather than just this sort of reactive bedrock of anti-discrimination law. So, for example, we've talked about the equal pay audit. Now, there's no sanction for failing to do that. Right. So it's not compulsory in a sense. But, you know, what we've seen is where people have got good stories to tell, there's a real rush to tell those mm-hmm. in terms of recruitment and retention. 
And actually, even if people don't have good stories to tell, it's it's peer pressure, I think, rather than the litigation itself, which which forces people to come out and report on that. You know, the idea of something like having a, a female on a shortlist for promotion, you know, I, I think yeah. these, again, are not necessarily legal strategies, but they are ways, I think, of improving diversity. It's difficult to do with, with the LGBT community because it is so personal. Uh, you know, there will always be people who, who for whatever reason, want to separate their work Absolutely. life persona yeah. from their, you know, from their personal life. So the idea of compulsion makes me nervous. But, you know, progress is too slow. I mean, that mm. that's what I feel, that we need to be looking around to do, to do something because, you know, progress is just too slow. These things evolve, but, you know, we need to see more role models, more affinity groups for organisations that do those sort of diversity surveys. If you've got a tiny, tiny percentage of your population that's openly and anonymously actually prepared to come forward as a member of the LGBT community, something's gone wrong within your organisation. That just can't be statistically. So I think you have to come up with strategies as to combat that, you know, to make an environment where people do feel comfortable about coming out about their sort of sexuality. And as Chris says, that's about role models, that's about policies, training, sort of affinity groups. So I would like to see, I think, the legislation playing a part in diversity strategy generally, rather than saying you must have X percent of your employees of, Mm. you know, particular protected characteristics. I think that's difficult. And I think, you know, as Jules says, it doesn't have to be either or, it should be both. So, for example, one of the things that really worked for me is I knew that, you know, in a previous job, I was not getting certain opportunities, not because I wasn't good, but because I was not the straight lad. Yeah. Equally, there was a partner that I used to work a lot for and I ended up doing a lot of sporting work with. And it was like, well, why is the gay Indian who doesn't follow football advising a Premier League (laughs) team? Right. And it's because his view was, well, you're good. And so you deserve the opportunity. And so I think we need actually to convert more of those allies. We need the straight, white, older men, the pale stale men, who still actually occupy the boardrooms. They do very much. And, you know, here's the other thing is that, you know, there is all this thing about having female representation on boards, which is great. But actually, what does that mean qualitatively? And I think that's the other thing is, first of all, if you say we've solved the LGBT piece, Mm. I can guarantee you that you have not solved it. Yes. And secondly, I don't think you can solve the LGBT piece without solving the gender piece, without solving the race piece, because these are not either ors. These are all part of the same issue right so i'm gay and i'm i'm an immigrant and i'm indian yeah but i'm also a man so there are certain doors that will open to me that will not open to you despite the fact that you're white and british yeah it's not either or it has to be all of these things together be um, intersectional yeah your policy is not worth anything if you're not making it an intersectional one so all right let's condense this right on down so <laughs> Let's try and come up with three top pointers for creating an environment that is honestly and genuinely inclusive, that will normalise LGBT people in the workplace, but also make people feel that they can come out or choose not to. And it is just as valid if you want to separate your work life and your personal life. That is your choice as long as you're doing it for the reasons that you want. 
How do we start to get there? I think you mentioned allies. I would love it if you could say a little bit about about allies as as one of those pointers. For me, the allyship part is so important. You know, I can say that in the workplace, it has been the thing that has allowed me the resilience to go back in. When you, when you get knocked down, you kind of you need the support to stand back up and for me having allies has meant that I feel someone else has got my back and we can all be allies to each other right in my previous job the last deal that I was doing it was being led by me gay immigrant but also man and then I had the chance to choose the team that was going to deliver this deal which was very high profile and I sort of made sure that it was all women on the team because I wanted to make sure that this sort of this opportunity would usually just go to the straight guy down the corridor. And I think that sort of thing is important, but we can all be allies to each other. But also, you know, it's much more powerful if I as someone who is a non-interested party make the case for someone else's rights. Right. It engages more people. We've seen that for example in Ireland with with the mm-hmm. abortion referendum that's just happened. Now, Again, query whether there should ever be a referendum on a question like that. But the fact is, the reason it was home and dry is because there were allies involved. I think the single most important step that you can take is to have a role model. You know, if you have an inclusive environment where people can be their, you know, authentic selves and they can see somebody with the same protected characteristic, you know, from the same social background who has succeeded and you can climb that ladder behind them it makes a huge difference and ultimately you know one thing that i did in my old workplace for example it was very successful and what we did was we got a bunch of allies or people who said they wanted to be allies mm. into the room and actually in a way this idea of you know people who are who aren't allies to me is slightly problematic because i kind of feel yes. everyone should be an ally but yes. let's park that for the moment but we got this whole bunch of people in the room and we said okay we've got you we're giving you 3 minutes talk to each other about your week turn to the person on your left talk to each other about your weekend but you cannot use any gender specific pronouns yeah. or nouns and you cannot use any terms that will disclose the relationships you can't say mm-hmm. my son for example you have to say my child or my partner and after 3 minutes of talking we said how did that feel and I said oh my god it is so exhausting because <laughs> yeah. you have to constantly filter in your head now you know imagine if you have to do that constantly at work and you're gay or you have to do that constantly at work and you're a woman you you know you're worried about what you can say and what you can't say you know you're worried if talking about your kids is going to give the impression that you know you're not spending enough time at work or whatever and that's a tax on your employee and that leads to problems in the workplace because people are not reaching their full potential yeah. and that means that as businesses you're not reaching your full potential as a business so you know it just sort of it all comes around in a circle mm. because the moment i feel that someone else is comfortable about talking about their partner as in there's a senior there's a senior associate in our team who is very she's very open about the fact that she has a wife and she has yeah. children i just feel so comfortable because of that because i feel that you know i i can drop a little bit of that baggage So I think that you know as HR professionals as people whose role is to manage you know people issues in the workplace and to deal with those you've got a really key business case here to make for inclusion for diversity and for just improving that that culture in the workplace so we all have a big challenge ahead of us that I think we can all be trying to fulfill in our own ways do you feel optimistic about the future of LGBT diversity and broader diversity in the workplace I do. I have to. <laughs> you know, it, it's what I do and I also think as a person the idea that we're not going to evolve and develop and learn is just well, it's just too gloomy to contemplate. 
I don't think there's any doubt that the future is better. It's more hopeful. It's more equal because I think, forget the law, but the business case takes you there. You know, Mm -hmm. to be a more profitable global employer, the business case alone takes you there on diversity. The frustration I have is the rate of progress. It's too slow. The responsibility that we all have to try and speed that up, that's key for me. Yeah, I mean, like Jules, I feel optimistic about it. Like Jules, I am frustrated with the slow pace of change. I do think in the last couple of years that pace has accelerated. I think the sorts of conversations that we're being able to have now in the workplace in the sort of post-Me Too environment, those are important. Those need to be had more often, more aggressively, frankly. And I think it is important that that we work together. I, I think equality is its not an LGBT issue. It's mm-hmm. not a women's issue. It is not an ethnic minorities issue. It is everybody's issue. It's also, frankly, a straight white male issue because yeah. we, we will all progress and benefit if we do it together. And I think breaking down that either or or us versus them scenario is really important because the moment we realize that if we get together, we can make all of this change happen much faster. You know, we, we just get that faster. Well, my deepest thanks to Jules and Krishna. And if you are interested in learning more about LGBT experiences in the workplace, we have got a lot more of this coming in upcoming issues of people management. Thank you both of you very Thank much. You. Thanks Thank for inviting you. Thank us. You. Great. Now it's time for our interview. And this month, I spoke to someone who stands at the forefront of the learning and development curve. If you've ever been involved in workplace learning, odds are you will have come across Perry Timms. The man is a giant in his field, the CEO of People and Transformational HR, author, public speaker and all-round L&D expert. And I asked him how social learning, the idea that certain behaviours can be acquired by observing and imitating others, is being influenced by the rise of tech. I mean, I'm sure there are lots of people who will say, well, we've always been social learners ever since we developed the art of sort of mimicry to use primitive tools. But I suppose if we take it in the context that I think you know, you're know you asking me about, which is a, a form of learning that isn't prescribed, that largely is um, in a dynamic setting with a group of people in the same proximity or connected in some way um, where there's both intent and emergence, uh, collaboration, sharing, uh, but ultimately there's there's some impact that's created from that kind of learning environment. So I guess it's all of those things. Do you think that the majority of organisations understand this concept, they're abreast of it, or is it kind of still something that they're starting to grapple with? I still think it's a it's a grappling issue. I think there are some organisations that perhaps are um, almost naturally inclined toward it because they perhaps have a slightly less formalised structure. So um, that might be in media, that might be in something um, a little bit more fluid. So I think those organisations that are very formalised and have very rigid structures and, and flow of work, uh, it's probably a very difficult concept to go um, into action with. Um, it probably feels like it's more random and accidental uh, than it is deliberate and um, programmed so I think I think we're still a long way off it becoming a norm despite the fact that you know I I had some experience in a corporate uh, environment where people had a course-based program to learn how to do a very specific technical skill yet some people were sort of parachuted in as temporary cover had a kind of social learning environment with people and were still hitting a similar level of proficiency 
And, and, I, and I was kind of perplexed by that. It's almost like a two-track system, almost like a two-tier system. Um, but it clearly showed the two can coexist. So, um, yeah, so I think a lot of people still think it's not quite as... Um, impactful or it's a little bit messy and so they don't tend to program it in and i think as well this whole concept of social has changed so much in the last five ten years with the um onset of of technology with the rise of the digital world when people think social they think you know social media they think online platforms so tweeting um skyping or all these sorts of things what role do you think technology is playing in the way that we learn at the moment? So, so I think it is um, all those things and more. So I think what it's doing is it's it's connecting us to streams of content for a start. So I think there's accessibility like we've never had before to the point that a lot of it is potentially quite overwhelming. So um, I'll come on to that in a minute. So, so we're accessing content. Um, we're obviously accessing and connected to each other. So um, I see a lot of people demonizing devices and going, hey, step away from the phone and put it in the drawer and all that. And, and I tend to take the approach, which is like, it isn't the device. The reason people are on it is because they're either exploring something or they're connecting to people. Um, and you wouldn't say, step away from that group of people. You know, how dare you? Um, it's almost like just because we're doing it through a device and we're on a sort of, I don't know, a Twitter chat or something like that, um, doesn't doesn't mean we're not being social. So, so I do think we're we're confusing some um, uh, of the digital kind of world um, as a distraction and as a, an obsession. When actually, what it is, a lot of the time, we're connecting to other people. Um, yeah, content people definitely. I think the obvious one is that it it fills the gaps. Um, if we're waiting for a train, if we're um, you know stuck on a, a an airport uh, uh, gate, uh, we can still learn and consume some content and connect to people, even though you know we're in a pretty sort of isolated environment where you can't really escape it so it's opened up i guess um previously sort of unused space and we are you know using technology all, all the time in so many different ways um could you give me any examples of really great effective technological learning platforms um what's really hot right now so uh, so there's a commercial product called loop uh, with three o's not two and and that's uh, been recently used by sky the uh, media company so what that's done is that's created almost like a, um, a curated, um, user-generated, um, connected platform that's very Google-esque in how it's used. So I think the designers of that are deliberately said, well, how do people solve problems in their own life? Well, they go to YouTube or Google or whatever. Um, so therefore, they've just recreated it, but for learning content. So um, I've seen that work really, really well. And then I've been looking into things like chatbots. And bizarrely, I found an example where there was a chatbot used in executive coaching. And it seemed to be favored by executives because they felt it wasn't judgmental. They could ask it um, and tell it anything without them having a human judgment. So um, so I'm seeing some people do some really, really quite cool experiments with tech in a sort of learning space. And on top of that, we've still got the... Uh, virtual reality and augmented reality that people have probably been talking about for quite some time and we're still hearing people talking about game-based learning. Previously you talked about people finding this you know maybe confusing a little bit messy some reasons why they might struggle with it but I find certainly in in my work that I still see a lot of L&D departments struggling to make that shift Mm. 
beyond traditional learning methods like classroom-based learning, like sending people away on training days, training courses, that sort of thing. Why do you think that is? So I think there's a combination, really. So I think we've probably still got a bit of a history of people feeling a little bit underwhelmed by um, digital learning in the sort of e-learning click-through online variety. So they've almost had a bitter experience. So they're like, "Mm, not sure I really like this stuff, uh, you know, as a replacement. So they they almost resist it on principle of a bad experience. So we're up against that. Then, then I think we're we're probably probably missing out on the fact that people do like to connect with others and they do like to have a social experience. And so, when you're just sat in a screen clicking through, that isn't particularly social. So therefore, the classroom with social buzz feels like a really nice place to be. Yet we know we can create some social buzz by you know I mean I've run webinars and multi sort of um, user channels on Zoom and Skype, and it's just like you're in the same room. You have a bit of a laugh. There's some nice playful exchange and it feels like a social environment so so i don't think we've socialized digital learning enough it's been a very solo pursuit and i think that's what's starting to come to realization now that it isn't a very good replacement for people sharing and collaborating with each other just you and a machine feels a little bit impersonal we mentioned earlier when we were talking about people being wary of of um uh technology and that sort of thing people saying you know put your phone down put your phone away now i do think that you know you should always take that with a pinch of salt but on the flip side we are also seeing the negative effects of our world becoming increasingly technological the cipd did a well-being survey I think it was about two months ago, where 70% of HR professionals said that um, technology was having a negative impact on their workplace well-being because they felt that they were always switched on, they were finding it hard to detach from their working lives. How can you protect against those negative effects and use learning and development and this uh, social learning in the most positive way that we can? So, I mean, there's a classic example, isn't there, of a problem where actually part of the solution could come from a digital um, solution. So, you know, if we're finding that, um, uh, you know, there's an intrusion into our lives from a device that's connected to work-based chat, uh, WhatsApp groups, uh, emails, uh, Skype calls, whatever, then actually we could create something digital in, in a sort of learning sense to help people understand how to do that flow uh, and how to manage intrusions and how to be a little bit more mindful about how much time they're spending on a device and so on and so forth. So there is a bizarre thing in that digital could provide some of the answers for digital in itself, but I guess also make it so that we have... um, digital um, and platforms and environments where we can connect to other people who can help us anyway so I posted on a Twitter chat only yesterday actually when people said what's the most helpful advice you'd give to somebody who's quite new to social media and they're in HR and I said find find somebody who's been on a platform for a long time and then learn from them in terms of all the years of experience they've got about managing flow so so I think that's it you know the answer is again use a digital channel to connect to a human being. And I think this is, you know, probably going to be becoming increasingly rare in in future years. But if you are a sector or an individual who does not have that access to technology, can you still be a social learner? And how do you do that? So I suppose the first thing I'll say is that work I've got with um, charity clients means they, they haven't got deep pockets to go out and procure expensive virtual reality systems or, or whatever it might be. But there's a huge amount of low-cost tech options that are either free or incredibly cheap that you can still replicate some of the functionality that you get in slightly more expensive programs. So that's one thing. Economics isn't necessarily a barrier. Um, but then if it's people's propensity to use technology, it's just not their preference, can you still be a social learning environment? 
environment? You absolutely can. If you've got people in the same proximity, then clearly they can start to, you know, deconstruct a program that would normally be a leadership development program and instead come together and work on projects and, and self-analyze and feedback and coach each other. That's a social learning um, platform and, and, and environment right there. But if you're not in close proximity, then I think you are going to have to use digital to bring you together. And so one last question then before we wrap this up, where does this landscape go next? If we are all connecting with each other on a seamless level, what role does learning and development play in the future? So I think it acts as a, a coach to encourage people to enter into dialogic exchanges and not just, you know, straight up content or answers or, or you know, go find it yourself type thing. So I think it can help people understand how to humanize their connections across digital platforms. We can become the king curator. So, you know, we can literally go to the very edge of known science and research and methodologies and make sure that those are accessible for people who otherwise wouldn't even know where to look because I think some of the stuff is uh, literally that uh, in order to make good on digital you need to know how to do things like searches that are intelligent and will get you not just the the, the sort of most popular answer but the most relevant answer to you so I think we can help bring content nearer to people and I think we will get much cleverer at creating content so we will become more experience-based. We will um, learn from how most of technology has built its infrastructure and its um, applications, and we will apply those in a kind of learning context. So we'll create nicer experiences for people who will want to keep coming back and shaping that kind of content. So those three things I think will help us. We coach, uh, we curate, and we create. All right, Perry Timms, thank you so much for joining me today. To end the show, we turn as ever to Tim's pointers with Tim Pointer. So please welcome our agony uncle. He is the Sherlock Holmes of Workplace Mysteries. It's founder of Starboard Thinking, Tim Pointer. How are you doing, Tim? <laughs> Giggling as ever at my over-the-top introduction. I know. How are you, Watson? I'm good. I'm good. I was looking for a deerstalker hat. I thought we could do this in deerstalker <laughs> hats today. And then uh, it was so hot and so muggy that I had to leave them at home because I just couldn't bear the idea of the ear flaps. <laughs> I understand. It would it, it would do it would do wonders for my beard, don't you think? Yes, I think you'd look like a lumberjack. <laughs> Actually, Tim is wearing a check shirt today. And See? so if we put a deerstalker hat on him and gave him an axe... He would look not out of place riding down the river in Canada. And I'm a massive Monty Python fan. I'm this close to ah, singing right now. Don't sing. We'll don't, save that for another don't day. Don't sing. We'll save it for another time. <laughs> <laughs> so this week, we are offering sage wisdom to a humanities graduate who is trying to break into the human resources profession. They wrote into us and they said, I have been a support worker working with autistic children since I left university a few years ago. And it's been more than a year since I decided to try and pursue a career in HR. I have started working on my CIPD Level 3 qualification and have been applying for entry-level jobs, but I'm not getting anywhere. As a humanities graduate with no experience of professional work, what can I do to get my foot in the door? It's tough out there. It is, it is, and that and that was my first reflection. So, you know, the first thing I'll say is I've been there. I, I was that humanities graduate mm. looking to move into, into HR. That was a few years ago. Um, <laughs> the market is tough, but it's finding those roots and those conversations that can make the difference. We're a people-led profession, but the truth is that the majority of jobs are people-led. It's all about the relationships. It's building up the, the, the biggest and most effective network that, that you possibly can. Mm -hmm. You know, you know better than I. 
the majority of jobs are never advertised. Yes, absolutely. The first thing I'd say is congratulations because you're cracking on with your studies and that's a brilliant place to start. And it shows that you're serious about coming into the HR profession. Mm. The second thing is how are you going about your job search? Yeah. Are you just looking for the vacancies that are out there, the more obvious routes into the profession? Or are you out there... There are so many great networking opportunities. You know, let's start with your CIPD branch. Yeah, absolutely. You know, branch is just so well known for being so friendly and open and loving to have people who are passionate about the profession coming along to the meetings. So a great way of meeting people there. The majority of these events are free. Some of them even put a cup of tea or a bottle of beer in your hand when you're there. Who Lovely. knows, you know? But the opportunity to get out and meet people and to ask this question to say, you know, what do you know? What are you looking for? What have you learned from people at different stages in their mm. career already? The uh, CIPD also has a really good mentoring program. Absolutely. Is that what you were about to come on to? I'm sorry, <laughs> I cut you off. Carry on, Tim. Yeah, you are Watson to my shirt. This is a double <laughs> act. This is, this is how this works. What I'd also say is, and this is something I don't know a huge amount of um, about because it's developing so quickly at the moment, and that's apprenticeships. Yes. And, you know, seeing the apprenticeships coming online across HR, that's something to scan for at the moment as well. So looking for those different routes in, some more obvious, some more not, but the first thing is get out there, meet people, understand, you know, make that list. Who are the employers in your local area who are going to have these roles? It hasn't changed over the years. We're so impressed with someone that has the that has the chutzpah to contact us and and connect and say, "I'm passionate about the profession, but I'm really interested in your business." Yeah. Provide both when you're making those connections. You know, do your research, and that will put you ahead of the competition in those in those conversations. And I think so much, especially because I remember, you know, coming out of graduate school and applying for jobs mm. and like getting nowhere. And so often you will find the opportunity knocks when you're not expecting it. I applied for a job at Haymarket Media to be a, a sound techie on What Hi-Fi magazine and to review speakers. And I applied for it and I got down to the final three and I didn't get it. And I was absolutely gutted. But do you know what the editor of that magazine liked me and he kept back my CV and he passed it to Robert Jeffrey, who is the editor of People Management and said, you know, she's fun. And they had an entry level role going. And so I got this email and um, it said, you know, we're a we're a human resources and a professional services magazine. And I thought, what? Um, <laughs> but I, I thought, you know, let's give it a go. And this that was my my step into the first job, getting turned down for something else. And the rest is history. And the rest is history. <laughs> Here we are. In three years, you could be guesting on this podcast. Who knows? And we all have that history of failure. Yes. All of the things that didn't work for us. Seriously, my mum in her attic still has a pile of rejection letters for, mm. for when I was coming out having completed my master's. You know, I was applying for all these different things. And I don't know if it's a weird thing to do, but I actually piled them all up because I took the view that the more that I put in the failure pile, <laughs> then one of them had to come good, right? Yes. You keep going. Like every time, rather than I didn't get that job, I'm now closer to getting the job that I will succeed in. So it's just keep going, keep going, keep the energy. 
and ask for feedback. If you get turned away from an interview, say to them, what can I do? What am I doing well? What am I doing not so well? Because these are learning experiences. I think it's so easy to get turned away from a job and to think, oh, God, well, that's that's it. And to close the door on it. If you can get even one thing out of it, one bit of feedback from a potential employer that will help you to grow then it's still a good thing. And you can be creative about this. There are ways of standing out from the crowd. There's a video, which is doing the rounds on LinkedIn especially, which shows this graduate in the US and she has sings her entire CV. And it's fantastic to actually see, the, see that level of creativity coming through. I'm not suggesting that everyone needs to go out and sing their CVs, but actually do what everybody else isn't doing. So everybody is emailing in their CVs at the moment or connecting mm. on LinkedIn. Do that as well as sending the physical copy of your CV. That's actually the old school way of doing things yeah. is actually the difference at the moment. And that stands out. It just shows a different way of thinking about how do I connect with this person. And we're looking for a bit of creativity and ingenuity and a different way of thinking and not doing what everybody else is doing. So try and find your way, which is genuine, authentic to who you are, to make that difference. And you might just spark a conversation once you've had that coffee. Goodness knows where it will go. So good luck to you and don't give up. Just keep on doing what you're doing and we will all be rooting for you over here in the studio. If you have a question for the next edition of Tim's Pointers, you can head over to our website or email us in confidence at pmeditorial at haymarket.com. And that's it from this edition of That HR Podcast. My thanks to Krish Omkar, Jules Quinn, Perry Timms and, of course, Tim Pointer. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud and, of course, on our website, peoplemanagement.co.uk. Feel free to rate us and leave your nicest comments. Plus, if you love what People Management does in print and online, you have until the 22nd of June to vote for us in the 2018 Willis Towers Watson Awards. We are shortlisted for Business Publication of the Year and we would love it if you could support us. My name is Emily Burt. The producers were Matt Hill and Chica Ayres at Rethink Audio. And until next time, I'm wishing you all a very happy Pride Month.